Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 14 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Well, hey guys, how you doing? Welcome to the show. I hope you've had a great week. Thank you as always for tuning in every week. I love your support. And thank you for sharing this around on Facebook or telling your friends and family. It means the world to me. And I appreciate that you are spreading the good news because why not? It's a good message and I'm glad to hear that you are spreading the show around to your friends and your family. This week I've been in Boracay in the Philippines. I had a few days off so I went there with my partner, hung out on the beach, went sailing and now I'm down in New Zealand just visiting with my family and my friends and uh, relaxing. So I'm going to keep this pretty short because I want to get back to hanging out with my family. This week on the show, I spoke with, well, one of my idols, one of my mentors and a guy I really look up to and who's given me so much, including a lot of his own time. And it's coach to the coaches, Rich Litvin. Rich co-authored a book called The Prosperous Coach, which if any coach ever asked me, you know, what book should I read? I always say the only book you need to read is The Prosperous Coach. And it does exactly what it says on the title. It tells you how to make a prosperous, thriving uh, coaching business, which is what all coaches want at the end of the day. But Rich is an interesting guy. Rich only works with the highest performers in any industry. He's worked with presidential candidates, with Olympic athletes, with a ton of multimillionaires. And so he's a real expert on dealing with high performers, which is an interesting topic. I really find this interesting because I work with high performers as well. And there's a couple of unique traits that Rich has identified. He has a new book coming out. It's not out yet, but I was lucky to get an advanced copy. And in that copy, he talks about how High performers often feel lazy. People look up to them, but they often feel lazy, like they're only giving it, you know, 50%. Uh, they feel bored and like they could do their, eye, uh, their job with their eyes closed. And a lot of the times they feel lonely. They've run into people that they can actually talk to about their big dreams and their big vision. So they're not necessarily lonely, but they feel very alone on their journey. So Rich is a high performer himself. He worked as a teacher initially in London. He's from London, Chigwell to be specific. And he's worked in Africa and Botswana. He's uh, worked as a teacher in Brunei. So he loves adventure and travel and uh, got into coaching a little bit later on in life after his teaching career ended. And now he works in Santa Monica in LA as a high performance coach. So I was excited to sit down with him. We talk a lot about his life and some of the lessons he's learned and some of the struggles he's had as a high performer and how he's overcome them and how he's working on his own a deep fulfillment and really building in freedom and adventure into his life so that he can feel fulfilled every day. Again, I think as always, you're going to get a lot out of this one because Rich is a, a great guy to listen to. And we joined the conversation when I asked Rich to tell me about his upbringing and it was a very lonely upbringing. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about that and what that meant for him as he went through his early life. So enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Rich Litvin. Oh, my story goes back to Chigwell, a little, almost like a village just outside of London. And uh, I grew up a, a pretty lonely kid, actually, Nathan. I, I hid away in my room a lot. I hid away my books a lot. I, yeah, childhood was quite lonely for me. My parents were not social, so they never had friends around. We just didn't have we just didn't have friends around. But I didn't know it was lonely. It was just how it was. And I went to a talk recently, listened to a talk recently, and a guy was talking to entrepreneurs, and he said to the entrepreneurs in the room, you know, what age did you guys know you were different? And they all did. They all knew. There was a five years old, seven years old. They all knew there was a moment when they knew they were different. That's, that's the, the lifeblood of being an entrepreneur. But I heard that, and I thought, oh, yeah. I've always known I was different. I just didn't know it was okay to be different. So I, I grew up feeling a bit of a misfit, like I never really fit in. I uh, didn't really know how to make friends. I, I, nowadays, there's a name for it. It's called being an introvert. And people misunderstand that. They think it's about being shy. I'm not really shy. I never have been shy. But when I'm around people, it takes a lot of energy from my system. And... So I found it hard socializing or going out or doing all the things that the boys are supposed to do, going to clubs, trying to meet girls, or like I did at least when I was a kid and, or what, well, 16, 17, and, and, I, and I struggled. I hated that environment because it was just too much noise, too, too much intensity. And so I was this, I was lonely, a bit confused, I guess. 
And I also, I felt powerless and I really seemed to lack confidence as a kid too. It was like everybody else seems to have this thing that I called natural confidence. And there was me feeling completely insecure on the inside. And I learned how to fake it, but I, I never really got past that sensation of lack or feeling powerless. And, and you know, you mentioned my dad. I, I realized my dad passed away two years ago. I had a really hard year a couple of years ago. He was very ill. He'd been ill for a while and he passed away. And uh, I spent my whole life trying to prove myself to my dad. I mean, that's all I wanted was my dad's approval. He was an entrepreneur, a businessman. He was not really around much when we were growing up as kids. And because he was working so hard, he was trying to put three kids through private school and take care of my family. But he wasn't around much. And you make up a story. I made up a story as a kid that I had to do something more to prove myself to my dad. And it was literally the moment he passed away. I was in at his bedside in the hospital and myself, my two brothers, my mom and my uncle, my dad's brother. And the moment my dad passed away, my uncle said, you guys know how proud he was of you, right? And, and something strange happened because I didn't. I mean, I did. I had a good relationship with my father. But on, on the inside, something was driving me from this place of if only I can just do this one more thing, achieve a little bit more, then finally my dad will be proud of me. And so that was a driver of mine for a long time, just just wanting my dad's approval. In fact, wanting anybody's approval. I, I would meet you and I'd want you to like me and I'd do what I needed to do, hoping that if I did this, that you would like me and you'd approve of me. And and that was a driving force for much of my life too. It, it, it's not a it's not a nice place. You meet someone like that, it doesn't feel good. So I guess there, there must have been an impact on the people I met and, and spent time with over the years when I, when I came from that place of wanting to be liked. And, and so th- that's that's the sense of the emotional journey. I just love you there. So you're, you're talking yeah. about being lonely yeah. and, um, you know, that, that experience of being lonely. You had brothers and sisters. Were you close to them? Two brothers. Uh, my Sorry, two brothers. brother Peter is a year younger than me. My brother Andy's five years younger than me. Right. And uh, so, yeah, we spent a lot of time together as kids. Uh, we did play together. We had <laughs> Peter and I and Andy are good friends now, but uh, Peter and me used to battle a lot when we were kids. Uh, uh, it's, I'm mortified now when I think of it because I've got two little kids and I, I really want them to be best friends. <laughs> but when I used to walk to school when I was 11, when I was 12, my younger brother joined the same school, went to the same school as me. And I'd have to walk to school with him. And somehow I just didn't want to be seen with my kid brother. <laughs> and I'd run away from him as fast as I could so he couldn't keep up with me. I mean, it sounds terrible now. But uh, that was my experience growing up. Uh, I'd maybe feel a bit envious of my younger brother even. Yeah. And the story you formed around your dad and getting approval, and yeah. you said you kind of you didn't come to terms with it until just in that moment, you know, after he passed. What's been the process to overcome that or understand it? 20 years of work on personal growth and professional development. Mm. I mean, I've, I've, because you can't be any more successful. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's not about uh, becoming more well, successful. You know right? what? Here's the funny thing, right? It's what does success mean, right? It doesn't matter what I accomplish. Even to this day, I give myself about 25 seconds to celebrate before I'm looking at how I could have done it better or improved it or done it differently, or I'm already onto the next project. What am I going to do next? Mm. Last year, I went to see one of my coaches and he said, how was your vacation? And I said, what do you mean? What vacation? He said, well, I thought you just run 10 days of events back to back. And I said, yeah, I did. And then he said, well, and didn't you say that before that, the first three months of the year, you were working really, really hard to grow the business? And I said, yeah, that's true. And he said, well, and didn't you say that the year before all of that was the toughest year of your life personally and emotionally because it was the year your dad passed away? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I thought you were going to take a vacation after this last event you put on. And I looked at him and I was incredulous because I said, you know what? On the Monday after the event, I went to a spa and I spent five hours in a spa. I had two massages. I hung out in the steam room. I spent five hours there and I was proud of myself, Nathan. I'd never spent that much time taking care of myself ever. And it suddenly dawned on me, oh, my God. This, I've come through the most tough, toughest year of my life, been through really hard work in my business, done 10 days of events training people. And I have uh, um, half a day in a spa, and I think I'm good to go. 
And so I did what was the one of the hardest things I've ever done. I spoke to my wife later and I said to her, I need to take 10 days on my own later in the year. I need 10 days just for me. Mm. And, and I grew up to be a people pleaser. I grew up to want to make sure that you're okay before I'm okay. And, and it was hard for my wife to say yes to that. And it was hard for me to say strong in, I need this. I need this for me, not for you, not for my family. I need it for me. And I stood strong and, and I did. I ended up taking those 10 days off last year. It's one of the best things I've ever done, just time for me. But that's, that's really hard for me to really take care of myself. I, I want to put everyone else's needs above my own. Uh, and, and that's uh, whatever it is, the people pleaser, the guy who's trying to prove himself to people. Uh, you know, it, it has a great positive effect. I became a high school teacher for the first 15 years of my career. And then I've been a, a, a coach and a, a trainer and a teacher for the, the second half of my career. And, and I'm lucky, I've always had a career where I've made a difference and have a positive impact on people's lives. But it probably came from a not so healthy place. And, and it certainly meant I find it very hard to take care of me, to put me first. In the such a relationship that I've seen and read about and heard about between loneliness and then creating that type of life around yourself, feeling lonely and then, you know, trying to put everyone else ahead of yourself so you never feel alone again. You make sure you're always yeah. surrounded by people and, and, and filling them up so they don't leave you and you don't feel lonely again. Does that resonate? Yeah, um, it does. It wasn't so much surrounding myself with people being, and I don't think it's black and white, you're either introvert or an extrovert. Yeah, I agree. But, but the you know the, the head the headline piece on this you know you I love this one you know you're an introvert if plans get cancelled and you're 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 excited yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh, so I'm more of an introvert if I'm around people for a, for a, for an evening for a day I then want to have a few days on my own whereas my wife is more of an extrovert we go out to a party I want to come home and stay at home for the next few days she wants to go to another party not even the next day that night. So I'm, I'm, it wasn't so much about being around lots of people. It was about being there for people, taking care of other people. How can I take care of you? How can I be there for you? And, and I'm, I got really good at it. Uh, it was a skill of mine. Um, it's my gift. It just wasn't always from a healthy place. So uh, going back to where, you, how do I get these insights? Tw 20 years of personal growth work, uh, 20 years of doing deep reflection, everything from journaling to having my own coaches, to attending events, to reading, all this stuff, learning about myself. I mean, the most important skill as a leader is self-awareness. There are so many leaders who have no self-awareness. And you can't lead powerfully if you don't know who you are. Mm. The introverted thing, I just want to come back to that just for a second because I really relate to it. And I had the same insight that you had that it's not about being shy. It's about the energy that you get from people. And God, that was such a relief for me. And people like my friends will tell me they go you're not an introvert you fucking love being around people you're life of the party but while that's true that's very draining for me so i love being around people and i love going and um, entertaining people and being that person but it's the same thing like i'm gonna go to new zealand for a week from tonight i'll be in new zealand for a week around my friends and my family at the end of that week i won't want to talk to anyone for a month like it's going to take me that long to recover from that time that was a real revelation for me, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, nice, nice. And, and, and look, it's, and that's why it's not so black, black and white, right? It's sure. situation specific. Definitely. You, you, you get energized by those people until there comes a moment that you don't. I've met, I've met extroverts say the same thing. I'm an extrovert. I love to be around people. And there are times when I just need to withdraw and be in my cave and take care of myself. There was, a time, that, there was a time that I made that wrong. There was a time that I felt wrong yeah. about that. Fuck, I need to be more of a people. Like, why do I, why do I need to retract so much? Like, why do I need so much alone time? Like, what am I, what am I hiding from? But then, you know, talking to people like you and understanding the difference between that, I understand that it's just an energy issue. <laughs> you know, I, 15 years as a high school teacher, right? I, mm. I, I taught science at the beginning of my career. I taught psychology towards the end of my career. And, and then I was a vice principal, but... I did not like the school system. I still don't. I'm still concerned about how do I raise my boys because the school system is antiquated. It's Victorian. It's set up to create factory workers. It's set up to teach you information. And this, we don't live in the information age anymore. Uh, the the uh, kids have an acronym for it. Uh, what is it? G T G T S. Google that shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you want you want some information. 
you, you go to your phone and you can find out any piece of information in the universe. It's, not, it's in your pocket. So it, it, schools are based on teaching kids around information. And, and those are not the hard skills in life. The hard skills in life are understanding yourself, understanding how to interact with people, understanding how to build relationships. That's what interests me. That's, in fact, that's what that's towards the end of my career when I was a vice principal and nobody was watching my lessons anymore because I was watching their lessons. Then I could relax and all I would do with my kids was chat and talk about life. And, and that for me, those are the important skills that we need to raise kids with today. Uh, that, that, that I can feel in my body I'm passionate about. Yeah, great. I want to hear a little bit more about that. I just wanted to add to it. Like I, someone was talking about curiosity too and how important it is to manufacture curiosity and teach children to be curious. Like why aren't we teaching that as a skill? You know, Google yeah. that shit's one thing, but if you don't have the curiosity to get to GTS, you've got nothing. So how can we help manufacture curiosity in kids so that they can, you know, follow what they're excited about? Yeah, and I, you know, there's even something behind that. How can you teach kids to be bored? Because mm. it's when you're bored, your mind starts to reflect and consider and think and dream, and that's when interesting stuff happens. It's really hard to be bored in this day and age. I catch myself if I'm walking around. Oh, this is embarrassing to say, but it's almost like as I walk into the bathroom, my hand goes to my phone because if I'm going to be in the bathroom for a minute. Oh, God, I'll heaven forbid. Heaven forbid right. you're doing nothing and just sitting on the toilet enjoying the moment. Right. Mm. And, and so how do we teach kids to be curious? We teach them to be okay with being bored and seeing what occurs. And, and so, yeah, that, that's, it's, it is important. It's important for me too. And I, I, some of that for me is taking time to reflect. Some of it is taking time to write. Uh, I like to create too. There's been some conversations on this podcast about homeschooling. And I know that has a weird connotation, probably especially for an ex-teacher. But do you ever consider that you could educate your boys better yourself? Oh, that's so interesting. I, I, you know, homeschooling's got, you know, we think back as an old-fashioned model of homeschooling and yeah, you know, strange-looking parents, but sure. no, it's very different these days. Mm. There, there's, there's something called the unschooling movement, which, if you don't know, is worth looking up. Right. And, and so unschooling is about, you know, uh, teaching kids by being in life. Uh, I, I, a client of mine a couple of years ago wanted to uh, homeschool her daughter and she was a bit lost. So I said, would you want to talk about it? Because I, I have a background in teaching. And, and I said, look, make it project based. It, she was thinking of going on vacation to Spain. She lived in London. So I said, well, why don't you have your daughter research what it would uh, a vacation to Spain? Give her a budget and she will have to make the phone calls, spend the money, do the research for the places they're going to go to, learn some this. Spanish, learn some history, uh, and, and meet some people. And, and it became a project that her daughter did. And so she, she studied everything from finances to language to history to relationships to organization. Project-based learning, I think, is something very, very powerful. And I went to a school, we're looking at kindergarten from, from my five-year-old right now. We went to a school here in Santa Monica the other day. And I loved it because they teach the kids entrepreneurship. They teach the kids to be entrepreneurs. And, and the, all the kids, I think these were nine-year-olds, maybe slightly older, they had to each come up with an idea of a project that could make money. And then they voted on it. And they all voted to, to create a restaurant. And one of the parents had a restaurant they're going to give over to the children for a night. And they were going to cook food and invite people in and, and, and sell the food. And, and so they, and the teachers were beautiful. They, what they did, they had, they even set up a, one of the classrooms became a government office, so they had to go and get their business license. <laughs> and they even opened the office late because they said they're going to teach them what it's like to go and go to a government office. <laughs> and and then the kids, one one group became the marketing team, one group became the the, the chefs, and one group became the the people who who uh, the, the, the service staff. And I thought it was fantastic. They're teaching these skills. That's what I want my kids to learn, these skills. And there'll there'll be some schools that teach this stuff, and some of this will come outside of the school system. Uh, you have to make, make sure some of them are Hollywood actors that are playing the, the waiters as well, right? Well, we're to in Hollywood, a Hollywood right around the corner <laughs> to where I live, so yeah. Um, look, look, here's the thing, though. I, I also know as a dad that I'm I'm a better dad when I'm not around my kids all the time. I know there's some people who want to be around their kids all the time and can be, and, and, and 
I'm, I'm not a good dad when I'm around the kids all the time, at least a three-year-old and a five-year-old right now. I need time out to be on mission, to be on purpose, to doing the stuff that, that make where I get to make my difference in the world so I can come back and be loving and have fun. And, you know, on Saturday, we're going off for a cruise for eight days, me, Monique, and the boys. I can't wait. But I just came back from a trip to London on my own. I need my time alone in order to be a really good dad. I couldn't be a dad who takes time off from my career just to homeschool the kids. I know that, I know enough about myself to know that and, and to be okay with it. Mm. So having the impact in your own time with them as opposed to homeschooling. I, I believe in quality moments. No kids ever grow up saying, I wish I'd spent more time with my parents as in uh, every waking moment with my parents, yeah. right? But quality moments. Those are the things we remember. The fun adventures you go on. I have a high value on an adventure. So does my wife. So creating little adventures for our boys is really fun. I want to circle back to the teaching because I love Steve Jobs puts it, connecting the dots, looking backwards. And I'm always fascinated, you know, looking backwards, how the journey looks to you. So coming from high school, making the decision to become a teacher, did you go into teacher's college straight after high school? No, I did not want to be a teacher. I don't think anyone at high school thinks they want to be a teacher. It's the last thing you want to be. I leave school at 18. I go off to university. I'd been studying. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted to be a doctor. Mm. And it was only a couple of years ago I discovered, talking to my dad actually, that, that it was my mother who wanted me to be a doctor. And at about three years old, she bought me this doctor's kit to play with, which I remember very well. And somehow I internalized it and thought it was my desire to be a doctor. <laughs> it was implanted. Um, my mum bought me one of those, um, one of those fake shops, you know, where you sold vegetables yes. out the front. So I think we maybe we had different expectations. <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, and so I was studying, we call them A-levels, like the highest, that's 17, 18, the, the, the top years of high school, to prepare me to go to medical school. And I didn't quite get the grades. And I just, I, something inside of me said, don't go back and, and retake the year. I could have done and tried to improve my grades. I just didn't want to. And so medicine was just gone in an instant. And I was okay with it. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. I did a joint degree with biology and economics. And, and the only reason I took the biology was I'd been studying biology, chemistry, and physics for, for years in order to become yeah, a doctor. doctor. And, and economics I studied because my dad said, you need something to do with numbers because Business is a really cool skill to have. And I get to university, I'm fine. I'm bored shitless for three years. I just had not much interest at all, really, in, in either the economics or the business. I, st I ended up studying psychology and the, the economics of developing countries. And that was really interesting for me, both those aspects. But other than that, didn't get much enjoyment out of university. The social side was fun, but not, not what I studied. And... Uh, and I got really involved in anti-apartheid. Uh, I, I led the anti-apartheid society for a while. We campaigned back then uh, before Nelson Mandela was released. Uh, we did some, a lot of campaigning. That was that was something that, wow. that had me come alive. Yeah. Uh, and, and then in my last year at university, I, I wanted to travel. I wanted to travel. I knew I did. I'd read a book called Jupiter's Travels about a man who traveled around the world on a motorbike. And I just, I wanted to travel. And I... I had so many friends who wanted to travel with me until we leave university and then nobody could make it. I have to start my job. I haven't got enough money. All these excuses came and I just knew I needed to go. And so I went off to India on my own. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm glad I didn't know about India, what I know now having been. It's, an, it's a tough place to go on your own. And I was, I was uh, what, 21 years old and... Uh, I spent three months traveling around until I got so sick I had to come home, which often happens to people who go to India. But uh, I had to travel, Buck. I, 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 I wanted to travel. I came back, had no idea what I wanted to do, knew I liked people, and a, a job opportunity opened up at a hospital near where, near where I lived called Great Ormond Street Hospital. It was a children's hospital, still around. And I became a personnel officer. And I didn't understand until years later because it bored the shit out of me. I didn't get it. I couldn't, I, I thought this would be great. And years later, I spoke to someone who worked in uh, that, that field and she said, yeah, the personnel work, human resources work in the healthcare sector in the United Kingdom uh, is all about bureaucracy. 
and, and she was right. She nailed it. It was so boring to me. I did a couple of interviews, a few interviews of, of staff for the hospital, but most of it was bureaucracy, shuffling papers. And one day I went to a careers fair because I was recruiting staff to come and work at the hospital. And I was so bored. I slipped away at one point just to go for a walk. And there was a talk going on about teaching. And I sat in the back of this talk. I don't know what had me go in a room, but I sat in the back of the talk and I signed up by the time the talk was over and quit my job the next day. And about two months later, I showed up at Oxford University to train to be a teacher for two years. And I loved it. I just loved it. And there were so many people there who'd left university, didn't really want to leave and, and teach a training way to stay at the uni a year or so. And I, I couldn't understand it. They had no interest in kids. They had no interest in teaching. For me, it was, this is fucking awesome. I love this. And I spent 15 years as a teacher. And it was hard at the beginning. I was 21 years old, maybe 22 by now, I guess. 22, and I looked really young. And I remember in my first couple of weeks at my first school, these two girls who must have been 18 and I'm 22, they literally chased me down the corridor and I had to run into the staff, uh, the, the, the teacher's room. And I, I, I literally closed the door as I heard them saying, he's got a fucking nice ass. And I slammed the door shut and took a breath. Was, I was so intimidated. I didn't know what to do. And I laughed now, but it was, it was, it was tough. It was tough. I was teaching in inner city London at the beginning of my career. And, and then, then after I'd done my training, I went off to Africa. I, I wanted to travel. I still wanted to travel. And I went off to teach in Botswana for two years. Can you just circle back to Oxford? Because Oxford is an experience in itself, right? Yeah. 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 Give, me, give me a couple of uh, highlights of Oxford and, and what that meant to you. I mean, that's a, I've been there once. One of my friends was a, uh, a tutor there. And so I got to have the whole experience at Lincoln University. And yeah. uh, it was just blown away. Like, I just couldn't believe the experience that people had there make it real me for too, me, me how too. your was, experience was well you know it's, i wasn't there as an undergraduate i mm. was there uh, doing a postgraduate course and i got to be at oxford university and live at oxford i was at wadham college and so i had it was a fascinating experience and i i was late because i was applying late in the year to to join this course so I, I, literally i as i said i suddenly applied and two months later i was at oxford so all the accommodation on the campus uh, had, had gone and there was a list to sign up for places where you wanted to stay. And I, I signed up for, for this, oh, what was her name? Lady. It, it, I, I lived for two years with somebody called, I think her name was Lady Waterford, something like that. But she was a lady. Her husband was a lord. Her husband had passed away. And I lived in this basically a stately home, <laughs> me as a, uh, as a student, for two years. We had the, there was a forest backed onto the garden. There'd be deer in the garden. And I lived in this home uh, it, 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 just with me and her. And, and she was away a lot of the time with family. So me living in this stately home, it was just the weirdest <laughs> experience for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, just a fascinating experience. I got to be at Oxford. Uh, I got to matriculate, which is the when you wear a, a, a white bow tie and a tuxedo and, and uh, uh, just fascinating experiences, dining in the halls. It was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I love it. So that's great. So, okay, so take us to Africa. So now I'm building the picture. Baby face, so nice years. ass, and uh, <laughs> slightly introverted. And then we go to Africa. <laughs> it's teaching two years. No, I want to travel. I know I want to go away again. I apply. I was looking at the, basically the British equivalent of the Peace Corps. And I, I applied, uh, went overseas, and I went to this little rural village in the north of Botswana. Botswana is a country just north of South Africa, borders with uh, Zimbabwe to the north. And here I am, this, this young guy. And, and I remember it was the first time I, I, I realized when you travel, you can change who you are. You, you can literally leave your baggage, right? I, I said to people, my name's Rich. And I've been Richard until that day. Mm. I, I, I'm 23, 24 now. I'm, my name's Rich. And it was a shift in who I was just by changing my name slightly. And I, I've been rich ever since. That you, you might meet a couple of my old buddies from the old days. I was hanging out with a couple of them the other day. Uh, but other than that and my mother, everybody calls me Rich and has done for the last 20 years. And, and so I, I just began to shift who I was. And I, I had this fascinating experience. I traveled loads around Southern Africa. 
I had a pickup truck and I, I drove around and sleep in the back, go camping, met fascinating people. Uh, I, I was teaching science to children who were learning in their third language. My, the, the kids I taught were from the, the Bakalanga tribe. They, they spoke Ikalanga and the national language was Setswana. And I was teaching them in English. And, and these kids lived literally in huts made of mud, literally in mud huts. And, and that's not a bad thing, by the way. When, when, when uh, Europeans went to Africa, they tried to get them to live in huts made of tin, which is a nightmare because in the summer it's boiling hot, in the winter it's freezing cold. Mud is the beautiful resource to use to build a, a, a home in Africa because it's cool in the summer and warm in the winter. And my kids would literally run to school in the mornings. I've never seen people who appreciated education so much. We take it for granted in the West. So I had an incredible experience for two years. And then I came back and... Now 25 or so? I came back in 94, so 26 now. And I'm... I, I, went, I went back into teaching in the, in the UK. Uh, I taught at a school called Holland Park School, and uh, I loved it. I really had a, a, a great time there. Fascinating school. Uh, it, it's in uh, it, Holland Park is one of the wealthiest areas of London, and it borders one of the poorest areas of London. Mm. And so our kids would literally be a mix of the two. We had over 40 languages spoken in the school, children from, from very deprived backgrounds who could go off to Oxford and Cambridge and kids whose parents had so much wealth and, and would end up doing also who knows what in life. And just I had a great experience there. It's where I began my journey into leadership uh, and I began to look for what, what would it take to be a leader in the education system. Uh, I became eventually, uh, within four years, I was the head of sixth form, which I think is called the Dean of Studies in the United States. Um, and I was I was in charge leading uh, the programs for the senior children, senior kids. I enjoyed it. I liked it. But I knew I wanted to go traveling again. And, and yeah, you're going to ask a question and I'll tell you where I go next. <laughs> yeah, you hear me take a breath. Yeah. No, I was just interested. Uh, is, is there any struggle at this point? Is there any, you know, like I know that feeling of wanting to go traveling is, that, is the thing that sent me to Japan is that my life was great, you know, my career was doing really well and everything was perfect, but this, there was this bug that I couldn't shake around travel. So is there a struggle here? Is there uh, some questions? Is there some uncertainty around this? Because it's sounding pretty exciting so far. Uh, okay, so let me take you back. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in this school. There's something missing for me. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm dating... And I'm not happy. Um, I'm I'm having a a fun time with my buddies, but something's missing. Uh, I, I put my attention on my career, and I worked hard on my career and 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 teaching. I, I enjoyed, but so, there was something a little bit missing. I was still trying to I trying to prove myself a lot. I think back then, trying to prove myself, and 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 knowing I wanted something more, knowing that adventure. I know now that adventure is a big value of mine. And, and I didn't see it at the time, but but when when I began to think about it, I, I realized I've, I've got to get out of here. I need something different. And I began looking at jobs overseas. And I found uh, an opportunity to go out to Brunei in Southeast Asia. And I, I jumped at a chance. I was going to be, uh, uh, again, I think I was called Dean of Studies over there. Uh, but I was going to help set up an international school. And that was exciting. And I went out to Brunei, and I spent four years living out in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's funny now; it seems like such a long time, but it, it went by in the blink of an eye. And I was there. Um, I, I it, it was just before I left. It was 1997 when I read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and it was the first time I started to do some deep inner reflection. I started then for the first time doing what he calls a weekly review. Just looking back, taking time once a week to look back at the week that's just gone and say what went well, what could have been better. And at the heart of it, that's all you need to do. And I did that for years religiously from then on. But I remember I did that three weeks in a row. I just sat down and had a palm pilot back then, I remember it, and I did everything on that. Um, Sat down three weeks in a row on a Sunday. What what went well last week and what could have been better? What am I frustrated about? What do I want more of? And it was when I sat down at the end of the month, the fourth time to review, and I literally went back to read what did I write the three weeks before? 
that I noticed for the first time ever, oh my God, I've written three weeks in a row, I've written, I'm watching too much crappy TV. And I wrote that again the second week and I wrote it again the third week. And it had never dawned on me until that moment I saw it in writing. Oh my God, I literally had no idea. I'm writing this week after week and I didn't even see it. And, and that was a huge shift for me doing this simple, it wasn't even deep reflection, just simple reflection, answering a couple of questions once a week. Because I began to see patterns in my life. What, were, what was I doing that worked for me? What didn't work for me? And I just began, I began a journey into reflection, a journey into inner leadership. And that was really valuable for me. It, it changed, transformed my life. That's your gateway into personal development. Yeah. It's funny, I, like 97, I was, that was my first year of high school. And that's the <laughs> first book I read. And it was about 97 oh, as well. That's crazy, yeah. Um, huh. So, okay, so then you make the decision to go from Brunei to where? Well, let me say something important happened to me in, Bru- in Brunei. I, I, was, I was stepping into leadership, reading a lot about leadership, learning a lot about leadership. And for the first time ever, I did a 360-degree profile. Uh, that's where, and I, and I chose to do this. Most, most of, you're the, really diving into personal development, doing a 360 you know profile. Most of the leadership training I've had is because I chose to go into it. I, 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 mm. I wasn't, I didn't ever get that stuff uh, recommended to me or given to me. I had to, I had to look and search. And so I, I, I chose to do a 360 degree profile where, uh, my, my boss answered some questions about me. So did some of my peers and so did some of my direct reports. And, and so did I. And then the, the answers are compared. And I was not just shocked, I was also embarrassed and pissed off at the number of people who said, Rich thinks his career is more important than the children. And that really hurt. Because I loved teaching because I loved kids. And yet, it doesn't, it didn't matter because nobody saw that. It, it, it took a, it took a little bit of time. Uh, to get over the hurt and feeling pissed off about it. But as I got through that and I began to do the, the, the deep inner work that was needed, I began to realize, oh, this isn't an issue of, this is an issue of communication because that's not my intent. My intent is to really be there for the children, but somehow I'm giving the message that my career is more important than that and I can shift that. And I did. Uh, and never got that feedback again doing 360 degree reports years later. I, People saw that I loved the kids, but it was because I realized I, I, I somehow I'm, I'm not I'm not giving that vibe off, and I am in some ways putting my career ahead of that. What can I do differently? And it, it had a big impact on me realizing uh, who, who I am is out there in the world. P- people see me, and and it's important to look at that and to, to notice the impact I'm having on people. It's interesting, like the guy, you know, the kid that's really striving to prove himself is giving off this vibe of only being about his career, <laughs> you know, kind of makes totally. sense. Um, totally. What's the transition? What's the, what's the change that you make to, to change that perception of yourself? Do you remember? Well, I think as in anything, if you want change to happen, awareness comes first. I mean, if you want to, be, if you want to lose weight, just start putting your attention on what are you eating? I, I got really healthy a couple of years ago when a personal trainer of mine said, take a photo with your phone of every meal that you eat and text it to me. I've never been so aware of what I was putting in my body. Mm. It's, so awareness is really key. And just that awareness and knowing I would do another 360-degree profile later. And so I was thinking about what's the impact I'm having of the words that I use, of how I show up, of the behaviors I've, I'm, I'm, I'm using. So... I'd say awareness more than anything else has a, has a huge impact. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. And someone that's a high achiever, you use that word a lot um, when you're talking with me, and traveling, I feel like there's a conflict there for me. I wonder if you feel the same thing, whereas that, that sense of having to prove yourself and be a high achiever is contained within a career or a business or a job. And travel and adventure somehow seems to sit outside of that. Do you ever have that feeling? Uh, I, I think what it is, there's, if you picture a graph with two axes, along one axis is achievement and on the other axis is fulfillment. So you can go along the achievement axis and get better and better job titles and make more and more money and become more and more well-known. But if you're not feeling fulfilled, something's really missing. And, and I got my 
fulfillment when I was traveling, when I was having adventures. And now I found a way to be fulfilled in my career. I did love my career, but I, I, I'd loved adventure. So finding ways to, to, to capture both, like teaching in a little village in Africa or teaching out in, in on, on an island in Southeast Asia, that's where I got to have both, be high on both those axes of, of achievement and fulfillment. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm projecting, I I'm projecting day, my actually, own Nathan, thing. You mm. know, yeah, I, I, I went off to Liberia two years ago to, to lead an empowerment event for, for uh, teachers out in Liberia. I've just come back from London where I led a training. You know, I get to travel and I get to do what I do. So I'm lucky I get to do both. Yeah, I love it. I love you've incorporated both. Yeah, that, that's it. I think that's what I'm trying to do now is how do you incorporate all of it? How do you – yeah, I guess that, that's what I was projecting onto you was my feeling of adventure is some kind of – that's something you do for yourself. That's something you do for fun, but it's time to get serious. That's kind of my dad's voice ringing in my head is you can't just have fun all the time. You have to work hard, you know, come on, get, get back to your day job. <laughs> That's what my dad always says when you're going to get a real job. He always says that to me, you know, jokingly, it's, it's in fun. But, um, yeah, well, I, think I can relate to that, that one. I, I know because I used to hear that as well. Yeah. Sometimes from my dad, sometimes from other people. I came back from two years teaching in Botswana so I'm, I'm 24 years old, teaching out in a rural village in Africa, and, and I am giving my all. Now, I got back so much more than I gave, but I'm there working with children, living in really challenging conditions. Uh, they, they were more than me, uh, but really there to make a difference. And I come back, and I remember the number of friends who said to me, how was your holiday, Rich? <laughs> yeah. Holy shit, I've been here for two years. And you say, how was your holiday? So it's hard for people. I think when it comes to adventure, when you take off and, and go off on an adventure, it challenges people because they either had to, it puts them into cognitive dissonance, right? They either had to accept, well, they could change their life and go on an adventure tomorrow too. But if they don't, then it's either going to mean something about them or it's going to mean something about you. And it's easy to make it mean something about you. Oh, well, you're off playing again. You're having a vacation. It's all right for you you don't understand we have name it xyz it's all right for you yeah is it fascinating this this i could talk about this for a whole podcast just this particular issue because this is like the story of my life but the thing i find interesting is you ask somebody why are they working why are you working what's to earn money and why are you earning money well because i have to save for my retirement and i have to you know make sure i've got money saved and when you retire what do you want to do i want to travel the world you always uh, travel the world seems to you always come up in that in that, uh, in that conversation is is that story I, I put it in my my book the prosperous coach there's there's uh, uh, a man a business executive goes oh, out to a beach story. and he sees a, a, a guy playing his guitar drinking some wine on the beach and he says what are you doing and he says well i've i've been out fishing and uh here's my catch and it's huge there's so many fish there and he said well you know this is crazy you're just relaxing on the beat what are you what are you doing he said, i'm just having fun i'm gonna go and hang out with my wife later play some more guitar drink some more wine well you know let me invest in you because you've got one boat now and you've got all these fish i'll invest in you or buy another boat and you can catch double the amount of fish well, why would i want to do that he says well if you do that we'll make even more money we can buy a factory on the on the beach and then we can process the fish and make even more money well, why would I want to do that? Well, if we catch even more fish, we process the fish, we can ship it overseas and make even more money. Well, why would I want to do that? Well, then you'd be able to relax on the beach in the morning and play your guitar and drink wine and hang out with your wife. I mean, it's exactly right. We chase our tail to do the things that we'd love to do when sometimes we can take the shortcut and just do what we'd love to do, right? Yeah, so perfect. It, you talk, there's a, a new book that you're putting out. It's called The Success Paradox, and I hope you'll come back on the show when the book is ready to release and we can uh, talk it up some more. But you, yeah. I was lucky you gave me the first half of the book to read, and that's a real privilege for me. It's the first time an author has given me half a book to read. You know, that's, that, was, that was a cool <laughs> moment for me. Um, but there's this thing in there, and I, I'm so in this conversation myself, so I was so excited to read it. The book is about provocative questions for top performers and you, you talk about top performers high achievers a lot and um it's something you really relate to and the concept in there that I, you just kind of touched on there is this concept of leaving a legacy and deep fulfillment 
which is something I've, I've taken that on because uh, that's what I do in my coaching. I'm not interested in success and how to make a million bucks and that shit. There's coaches that do that. I want to ask those questions. I want to play in that game. What's the legacy you're leaving and what's the, how can we find deep fulfillment for you in your life? So I want to have a little conversation around that and fulfillment's a tricky thing. You've mentioned the Tony Robbins quote, there's a science to success, but fulfillment's an art. Tell me a little bit about the art of fulfillment and how you start to to work on that, just personally for you. I've done a lot of reflection on the values that are important in my life. And I know that fun, freedom and family are important values. So I, I make sure to put that into my world. How do I create time for fun? How do I create time for family? And, and how do I create freedom in my life? I can fill my work, my, my week up with work easily. I, I used to get to work at six in the morning and finish at eight at night. And I do that six days a week. And sometimes I work on a Sunday too, when I was a teacher and, uh, and it was great. I felt great about it. I, I wasn't complaining. I loved it, but there's a place where that's not healthy. And so looking at what are the values that I have in life is, is really important to me. Uh, making sure that I put my values front and center is how I create fulfillment in my life. Yeah, I have a, I have a high value on adventure. So I'm looking at my calendars on the wall in front of me. I went to Sedona in Arizona in January. I went to London to see my mum and, and some of my family in February. I'm going on a cruise to Mexico and a trip to Canada this month. And then in May, I'm going to Ibiza uh, off the coast island, the coast of Spain. You know, I, I've got a high value on adventure. And so I got to find ways to put adventure into my life. I, I, I'm, I'm values driven as an entrepreneur. I, I, I teach my team what my values are. I have a value that I call slow down to speed up. And I've trained my team. I do not want to be known as a business that answers emails quickly. I, I don't care whether we take a week to get back to your email or maybe we don't ever answer your email. But if you write to us and you're one of our people, I want to be able to astonish you. And if you're not one of our people, it's a bit like my front door. Sometimes people knock and I look through the peephole and I say, no, thanks. And or I'll call out. Who is it? But I don't let everyone into the through the front door, or so I don't open the front door for everybody. And I don't let everybody come through the front door and sit down at my dining room table, so I can filter in business too, and and having values and a filter for the people I want to spend time with. Those are really important things for me. So what is it in uh, art? What's, a, what's the dance that you have to do to make sure you stay fulfilled? Why is it in art? Because there's there's no there's no mathematics to go with this. You can't. There's no science to it. I have a belief that space is where miracles occur. So I have to create space in my life. I have a belief that uh, I, I, have, I have a compass for knowing what decisions to make. And my compass is if I feel a little bit excited and a little bit scared at the same time, then that's the direction I head in. And I, 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 I've got a new member on my team right now who I told her recently her only job is to help me do the things that Either I want to do and I'm procrastinating on or that I'm afraid of. And she said, well, what are you afraid of? And I said, well, for two years now, I've wanted to start boxing, but I'm scared. And she texts me the next day and she said, five o'clock tomorrow morning, you've got your first boxing class. And I've been doing it for four and a half months now. And I love it. So there's no, it, it's, a, it's an art, right? It's a game. It's edgy. It's, I, I have to experiment all the time. There's no, there's no science to this. There's no mathematics to this. Yeah, well, I, I, it's, it's so interesting to me because I'm in this own conversation myself, but also with my clients. My clients are high achievers, high performers as well. And so they come to me with this question, this, you know, I have everything I've ever wanted. That's something I hear all the time. I've got everything I've ever wanted, a loving relationship, I have the job I want, my income is steady. But there's, there's an emptiness, there's something missing. And then just yeah. going into this conversation and it's like, well, I can't give you a pill for that. I'm sorry. We're going to have to go and play a little bit and see, you know, find, start finding the little moments where you do feel happy and fulfilled. Yeah. I think there's two ways. One is at the micro level. Yeah. Well, you know, what made you smile yesterday? Yeah. Uh, my wife is teaching my boys right now to look for everyday miracles. Wow. And, and Kaleo came home yesterday. He's five years old. And he said, Hey, my friend EJ had an everyday miracle yesterday, mom. <laughs> she said, what do you mean? He said, well, at lunchtime, he said, I really want to go home. 
And then his mum showed up about half an hour later and she said, I'm taking you home. <laughs> it's a miracle for a child. <laughs> <laughs> Everyday miracles, right? But yeah. what you put your attention on gets stronger. And so I, I use an acronym for, the, for the, the letters that make up the word life. When I'm working with my clients, I'm working on one of these four things, L-I-F-E, L, legacy. Where can they make a difference that's going to have a ripple effect out into the world or after they've gone? What's their legacy project? It's a really powerful, fascinating conversation to have, especially with extraordinary top performers who've, who've they've done everything they want to do in their life and their career. Legacy or contribution is a really wonderful conversation for people to have. Mm. Second one is impact. How can you increase your impact? What impact would you love to make in the world, on the planet, with the one person you're with right now? Third one is freedom. What would give you more freedom? What would have you feel more free? That one is fascinating for so many of us, particularly those of us who are entrepreneurs, because we, we almost always become entrepreneurs because we want more freedom. And then as the business grows, if we're successful, we discover that success takes away our freedom. So a freedom conversation is a fascinating conversation to have with people, especially entrepreneurs. Mm. And the third one is energy. The fourth one, energy. What I love to do this exercise with clients. What what gives you energy and what drains you of energy? Make a list. Make a list of all the people, the places, the projects you're up to, and the habits you have that fill you with energy, and all those that drain you of energy. And then one at a time, we remove those ones that drain you of energy. And guess what? You have more energy. So everything else you wanted to make happen anyway is going to happen without you even having to work on it, simply because you have more energy. Well, great system. Yeah, Kyle Cease calls it what feels heavy and what feels light. I love that. Nice. I love the feel of that. Yeah, I love that. It's very visceral for me. Um, that's cool. So let's let's move into coaching because we're kind of drifting that way. And you mentioned the Prosperous Coach, your book. And just the story, I think it's important for context, just to finish off your, your life story. There's a moment where teaching comes to an end for you and coaching begins. Just tell that story quickly. Yeah, I, I always forget. I've told, told the story so many times now, but it's still real for me. It was 2005. I, I left the one school I was working at in London to go and work at another one for a very inspiring head teacher. Two or three weeks after I arrived, he, he had to leave. And so suddenly I'm in this organization with, and oh, I know. And, and the, the, the backstory is they, before he left, a, a consultant had arrived and I couldn't stand this woman. She was so... <laughs> To the values that I had about life and school and education. She was all about the numbers and grades for the children. And I was all about the children and nurturing them. And, and, and I wanted myself and this head teacher I'd gone to work for, we're going to shift the way I was the vice principal, going to shift the way that children were taught, that the teachers were taken care of, the parents were brought into the conversation. I couldn't stand this consultant. Well, suddenly one day we're told that the head teacher has gone and the consultant has been made the head teacher. I mean, it had been set up by someone at a government level. And so now here I am, I'm in a school with a woman who I couldn't stand, who's now the head teacher. And a few days later, I'm called in seven o'clock in the morning to the head teacher's office. I felt like a kid going to see the, the head teacher. And she said, I, Rich, I'm sorry, I don't see a place for you in this organization. Those words I've never forgotten because they- Wow, they, yeah, that's heavy. Yeah. I think she was trained in those words because she said them several times That's why they landed so strongly with me. I do not see a place for you in this organization. Mm. And um, I wish I had a cool story, but I cried and I begged her to keep my job. And she said no. And I'm so grateful in this moment because I wouldn't be here where I am now living in California with my wife and my two little boys. I'd probably be a, a very successful and head teacher who was missing out on something and not knowing what it was. Yeah. So Connecting I, the dots, I, looking backwards, I like it. 7.15, I'm driving home, tears streaming down my face. And, I, and to this day, I have some shame that I never got back, went back to see the children to say goodbye. I couldn't. I was too emotional. I knew it'd be a bad thing to do. It wouldn't be good for the kids. And I, I left without ever saying goodbye. Mm. And I remember driving home down the M4 motorway in London, shouting at the top of my voice, just sh swearing, just saying, fuck you to, to the teacher. And ashamed, how am I going to tell my parents? How am I going to tell them I've lost my job? And all my friends said, 
so much sympathy for me. Uh, we really feel for you. And, and you know, get, get back on the horse. You know, apply for another job. There was plenty of teaching jobs at that time. Get And I think it was actually more through humiliation than anything else. But I needed to get away. And one of my buddies, when I told him the story about what happened to me, he said, you lucky bastard. And for years I thought that if I'm going to write an autobiography, that's what I should call it, mm. you lucky bastard. Because I got it. And the moment he said those words, I realized, fuck, I've been given this money as a payoff for leaving the school. I've got money. I've got nothing I need to do. And I'd been doing a lot of yoga and meditation at that time. So I thought, let me look up a yoga course somewhere. I can go and do some yoga for a, a few weeks. And there, there weren't any courses longer than a week. Apart from this one teacher training I found uh, on an island in uh, Thailand. And I wrote to the teacher and I said, look, I'm not supposed to be a yoga teacher. I've only been doing yoga for a few years, but I'd, I'd love to do your course. And she wrote back to me and said, Rich, you know, there are some yoga teachers who need to put their ankles behind the back of their neck and, and teach because they're amazing at yoga. And, and some people want a yoga teacher who are just a year or two down the road to them. I'd be happy to take you on my course. So I went off, left England, end of 2005, to go and do a yoga teacher training. And it wasn't for me. It was never supposed to be for me. But it gave me an excuse to be out of England for a month. And I loved it so much. Went back to England, rented out my house, came back to Thailand, spent six months living on a beach in Thailand. And I just, I began coaching out on a beach. I had these playing cards with coaching questions on because I'd been trained in coaching uh, as part of my leadership training uh, as an educator. And I began coaching people on a beach. Six months later, I went off to United States to do a workshop around coaching and met a woman, proposed to her 10 days after that. Uh, I'd finished this really powerful training where they said, don't make any life-changing decisions in the next two weeks. And 10 days later, I proposed to this woman. And she said yes. And this year, we'll have been married for 10 years. And wow. So, Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And, and look, it's been it's been a journey. We've had our ups and downs. We still do. It's not a Hollywood romantic ending, but I, I, I'm living my life as an adventure and I'm living in a, in a relationship with a woman who didn't fit the mold of what I was looking for. Thank God. Cause I didn't know what I should be looking for in relationship. I was looking for women who, who didn't have much emotional range. I, I was looking for women where life would be easy for me. I'm married to a, a jazz singer and a performer who, who wears her heart on a sleeve and whose emotional range goes from zero to 120 times a day. And it's overwhelming for me at times. And yet, I, whatever I said, what comes to me now is I'm in a relationship that nourishes my soul and my spirit. And I spent most of my life looking for a relationship that would give me what I thought I wanted. Now I'm getting what I need and it's challenging and it's edgy and, and we have our ups and downs, but I'm in the right relationship. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I just want to touch on the, the, the coaching very quickly. So we've got a couple of minutes. Um, when I wanted to start coaching, I, I, I didn't even know what coaching was, but then I hired a coach because I was having a tough time and I couldn't believe that it was a job that you could have amazing conversations with people about personal development and people paid you for that. It was incredible to me. And my coach said, there's only one book you need to read and it's called The Prosperous Coach. And that will, that will take care of everything. There's no other coaching books you need to read. And that's your book and the book you co-wrote with Steve Chandler. And after reading that book, I flew to San Diego for an Evercoach summit, which is uh, something you're a part of as well. And it makes me laugh now because we were sitting having dinner and I saw you sitting at a table by yourself I invited you to come and sit with me for dinner because I couldn't believe, oh, there's Rich that wrote this book that I love. And the thought of you as an introvert thinking, fuck, I'm so glad I found a table by myself. <laughs> and there's some <laughs> precocious young guy calling you over to come and you know chat with you about, <laughs> about coaching. Um, well, no, don't, don't forget, I love, I love deep, intimate conversations right. that, that, that I catch. thrive on. If, if you said, Rich, I'm having a party next door with 50 amazing people <laughs> and there's loud music and we're having great fun and dancing all night, <laughs> it might have been different. Yeah, um, it was an amazing conversation. And then you invited me to do some coaching on stage or uh, you know, in, during your event the next day. It was a life-changing conversation for me. And now we're working together in, in 4PC and it's... Um, it's amazing. But why did you begin coaching the coaches? 
because I think there's going to be a whole generation of coaches now just from what I see and what I hear out there that are going to be rich Litvin coaches. Well, originally I didn't want to. I, I didn't want to write the book. I'd been, I was on the faculty of a couple of coaching schools and I was writing a lot for people because they wanted to know how was I building my practice with just a few one-on-one clients without using social media, internet marketing. And so I was writing for people. And one day Steve, who's written 30 books, a prolific yeah. author, Steve said, do you want to write a book together, Rich? Because I think we've got some really cool stuff and we've already written a lot of the material. And I said, yeah. It was immediate yes because I knew that, that I just trusted Steve and I love Steve and he was already a published author. It made it feel easy for me. And, and then the book came out and it's done extraordinarily well. By word of mouth alone, we've sold over 30,000 copies in three years. And, and, and yeah, it seems to have a real impact for people and I love that. But I didn't start off by wanting to, to, to teach this stuff to coaches. I wanted to have my own few extraordinary clients. And then there came a moment when I just owned it. Look, you've put this book out there. It's had an impact and coaches want to learn. Let, I love now that I've stepped into that and I run a couple of events a year where I help coaches to build their coaching skills, be powerful coaches in their own right. And, and I help them to learn the skills of enrollment to get extraordinary clients. And, and what's cool about that, it has a ripple effect in the world. Coaching is an amazing gift to people. And if more coaches are, are able to do that in a powerful way, it makes a huge difference. And, and now I'm very grateful. What, what happens these days, because I've stepped back into leadership, I've stepped back into owning where I'm a leader and, and where I'm fascinated and always have been about leadership, that I'm looking for people who I work with in my communities who are leaders, some of them coaches, some of them entrepreneurs, some of them are leaders in different fields. But that's where the loop of the circle closes, where that, that little boy who felt lonely for all those years and, and didn't know why that it was okay to be different, now I get to put together communities of extraordinary people who all felt lonely because they were the top of their field. And that little boy who spent all those years trying to prove himself and, and ended up being a really top performer now gets to hang out with really top performers who've all got their own guilty secrets going on. <laughs> but that's where the loop gets closed right from the beginning of our conversation to the end in this moment. Yeah, beautiful. It's <laughs> an amazing story. And The Prosperous Coach, the book, is so good because it doesn't really talk about coaching. It talks about how to build a profitable coaching business. And I think that's an important distinction to make, and that's why it's so successful, uh, a big part of why it's so successful. I'm going to ask you the tough question in a minute about your dark side. But before that, who are you looking for at the moment and how can people find you? Thanks for asking that question. If people admire you for being successful, but on the inside you feel lazy, that's okay because it's the same for so many extraordinary top performers. If you're at the top of your career, you've got lots of money or recognition, but you're unhappy, that's okay that's a sign you're also playing at a very high level game. I spend time with people who play a high level game. I hear a lot from people I spend time with. I'm bored. I could do this with my eyes closed. Or that big mission I've got that inspires so many people around me doesn't inspire me anymore. If you're a high performer, then go to richlitvin.com. Have a read about what we're up to. Go to 4PC, the number 4, PC, dot expert and have a look at what we're up to I, I love to spend time with extraordinary top performers leaders entrepreneurs coaches who are looking for something more want to make a bigger impact in the world want to leave a legacy want more freedom want more energy that's what i'm up to nathan yeah, i love it i'm so grateful i meet you because the conversations you have and i just notice in my day-to-day -day life i'm referencing rich Lippin on so many things i say i feel like a, a fraud sometimes because i steal so much of your material your dark side, it's the question I ask every man and it's uh, insightful for us. Do you have a dark side? And if you do, how do you embrace it? I, I do have a dark side. Um, we all do. I ha have a dark side because I have shame around sexuality. Didn't really learn much about what it meant to... No one, no one ever taught me, Nathan. I just, mm -hmm. I just grew up not knowing... Uh, <laughs> What, what sex was about, what it meant. So I spent a lot of years struggling to date women. Some years confused about my sexuality. Even now, uh, I, I can get 
triggered uh, when it comes to sex and sexuality in my relationship. So there's a there's, there's an area there that's a dark side for me and dark kind of almost like not 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 as in, not as in a bad side, but as in hazy for me. It was never really opened up and brought into the light. What is where it's okay. Uh, the other the other side where it's something similar is probably around aggression and violence. I was brought up to. I wanted everyone to like me and 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 be a nice guy. Uh, you and I were talking before the call about that book. No more Mr. Nice Guy. And and so there's that part of me that that's never embraced the, the masculinity of where I could be a killer or where I could bring in my aggression. And so those are the two sides where that not much light. I haven't had a chance to shine much light on either of those. Yeah, beautiful. I really appreciate you bringing that up and being vulnerable about that because your story is so beautiful and you know you're such a high performer. And it just I love making those parts of masculinity real for people. So I appreciate you saying both of those things. Rich, I know you've got to go. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I just want to say how grateful I am that we met and how one amazing thing about you is you never put yourself on a pedestal. You're always available to people around you. You're very real. And there's no one in the last few years of my life that's had a bigger impact on my life personally than you. And so I'm grateful that we met and I'm grateful that you've embraced me into your community. And I hope that when the success paradox comes on, it comes out, you'll come back on the show and and, uh, promote that as well. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you part of my community. I appreciate you giving me a chance to share some of this story uh, and and that that you're interested enough to want to call it out. I I really appreciate you. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks, Rich. Well, there you have it, folks, my conversation with the wonderful Rich Litvin. If you want to learn more about Rich, go to his website, richlitvin.com, or if you want to learn more about his group of high performers, go to 4pc.expert. And as always, I'd appreciate it if you share this around on Facebook and Twitter and all the other social media, and give it a rating and a review on iTunes, and I'll be back next week for episode 15 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.